Hello, Gov. Oi, it's Better Red the Dead, isn't it? <coughs> oh, I'm sorry. Something uh, something happened to my voice there. Let's try that again. All right. <laughs> Hi, this is Better Red the Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. Megan is on maternity leave. And today we'll be closing out our 2019 season uh, talking about A Christmas Carol, which is Charles Dickens' 1843 novella about a city of London capitalist getting owned by four ghosts at Christmas time. <laughs> so, uh, Katie, why, why did you want to read A Christmas Carol? Oh, boy. Here we go. Well, I am into Dickens. I like Dickens. But Christmas sucks. And so does this story. Boo. <laughs> Um, again, I just want to make one thing abundantly clear. Ghosts are fucking cool, but I am really not convinced that this is actually a story about ghosts. Uh, I think that this at its heart is a story of a left brained business tycoon who went on an ayahuasca retreat (laughs) and just sort of returned a changed man. (laughs) Um, he's at the beginning. Scrooge is like this kind of um joe rogan listener type who's trying to optimize their body and hack their life and put butter in their coffee and like dopamine fasting and (laughs) cold showering (laughs) to make their dicks like like you know 34 percent bigger (laughs) i think he's i think he's that kind of a guy um and it, I just like, I respect someone who, when they're not hustling, it's just because they're on their grind. And that's Scrooge to me. Um, uh, yeah, I, I just feel like he's sympathetic. I feel like he's sympathetic. I feel like he's unfairly vilified. I feel like working constantly and keeping your house at 52 degrees and finding it annoying when your jackass nephew who shit talks you constantly <laughs> busts into your workplace and makes a big speech about morals to be annoying. <laughs> Yeah, I I think that's okay. And also like, yes. Okay, so he doesn't want to do charity at the beginning. (laughs) All right. It's also because two fucking guys appear at his door out of nowhere and are like, hello, we're representatives of the human fund. Can you give us money, please? (laughs) He just he just doesn't want to do any George Costanza fake charity bullshit. He's simply trying to lean in and nobody will stop bothering him. And so, you know, my grievances are are Scrooge's grievances. I'd like to express them here today. <laughs> in in the tradition of Festivus, yes, the area of the grievances. Um, I will say Ebenezer Scrooge, sympathetic character, not really a take I would expect from a leftist podcast. But, <laughs> uh, also, Katie, I have to say, uh, not, not liking Christmas, frankly, I expected better from someone who loves Little Women and the sentimental novel as much as you do. I know, I know. <laughs> I wasn't raised right, Tristan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Fault, faulty pedagogy, as, as as ever with the 19th century, right? It's uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> disordered your uh, your feelings about Christmas. Uh, no, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I have different take on Christmas, although I uh, admit that my take is is also uh, w- weird and uh, particularly, you know, for a self-professed Marxist. Um, but, uh, well, but yeah, uh, I agree. Dickens is awesome and at least as far as that goes i know two-thirds of this podcast agree about that um megan does not uh i believe her exact words via via text were all caps please do dickens without me all dickens is boring um (laughs) 
which is of course wrong. Um, and I was briefly <laughs> like, well, okay. In exchange for Ulysses, guess what? It's Bleak House time. Uh, <laughs> but, but then I remembered that I've already foisted Walter Scott on her right after maternity leave. So I, I think we're, we're even, um, hi Meg, uh, we, we, we miss you and we're, we're really, really excited for you. Um, you, you know that. Um, I love you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but but no, I, I I love Dickens' over the top characterizations of these typologies that he he creates. Um, I think, despite his often lib as fuck politics, he's also actually a pretty incisive critic of the social effects of industrial capitalism. Um, and look, I I very as as I indicated, very unapologetically and unironically love Christmas. Uh, super weird for a godless heathen Marxist to admit that. Uh, what with all the hyper commercialization and the war on Christmas, social conservative idiocy. Um, but you know, I I do. Uh, yeah, and for you know, for one thing, winter sucks. It's dark and cold. Um, and the pagans had it right with Saturnalia. You know, we need a shit face balls to the wall party right about now. Um, and you know, both my grandmother and my mom always went all out for Christmas. Um, I'm extremely sentimental about it to the degree. I think that Katie is about little women. Um, yes, uh, this is a goofy book. Uh, yes, it's politics or ambiv- ambivalent and, and suck a little, uh, and fuck you if you try to take it from me. <laughs> well, nobody here is trying to take it from you. You can have it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that's right. It does not seem to be a contested object. So. <laughs> yeah. It's all yours. <laughs> uh, Okay, so today we are going to be talking about uh, the politics of A Christmas Carol, what what we can say about those, um, also how uh, the, the novella wants us to think about poverty um, and responses to poverty. Um, we're going to be talking about Scrooge as a character, uh, whether he really is a character in any kind of developed sense, um, and, and also how the novel wants us to think about character and allegory. Um, and we'll be talking a little bit about London as an urban space and London as itself, maybe kind of a character or an important feature of, of this of this book. I am doing my pretend Victorianist hat for this episode, uh, which is a at a custom role at this point. Um, so I, I will I will do the summary and then a little bit on on Dickens and this kind of political context of of this uh, novella. We're about to get that dick. <laughs> <laughs> yes yes exactly uh, yeah yes um M- merry christmas um <laughs> but this, so this is one of the best known stories to come out of the british 19th century um it's had you know 50 million editions theater adaptations tv and movie adaptations if you guys know those department 56 christmas village ceramic things that you find all over suburbia and rural america in, including at my late grandmother's house uh you know they've made models of 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 a christmas carol you know of, of the buildings of a christmas carol um so i really doubt i need to get into the story too deeply um uh, but just- yeah no no, Tristan, everybody knows about different brands of Christmas knickknacks. You are, <laughs> like, everybody's I, with you. I am sorry. Yeah. You, you are from New Jersey. You have been to a mall. You have been to, you have <laughs> seen the Hallmark store, which is like just wall to wall, this schlock. So. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I find, find We're finding out some things about me this episode. That's for sure. Uh, <laughs> So, um, okay. So here's the story. Uh, there's this rich asshole named Ebenezer Scrooge who has a counting house in the city of London, uh, which is of course the square mile, uh, you know, the old medieval city that has, has basically been English wall street, uh, since long before there was, uh, a, a wall street in, in New York. Um, 
And he's a ginormous asshole. Um, he, he lets his, his poor clerk, Bob Cratchit, have precisely one lump of coal for his fire. Uh, his, his goofy nephew comes over to invite him for Christmas dinner. And I, I want to concede the point to Katie. The, the nephew does seem kind of annoying. Um, and, and Scrooge tells him to fuck off, uh, you know, and, and, or, you know, bah humbug, which is his, of course, his, his famous anti-Christmas catchphrase, uh, which I do think roughly translates to fuck off. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, these guys come to the firm collecting donations, uh, and, and, and Scrooge famously says, are there no prisons at the U- workhouses are they still in operation the treadmill of the poor are in full vigor then um so yeah big time asshole um in, in today's terms he's the kind of person who collects signed copies of atlas shrug uh and has a wang shrine to milton friedman in his bedroom um uh, <laughs> definitely a paul ryan voter uh and i i'm not you know and i'm not joking actually i, I do uh, i i think that this uh this is the or what scrooge is meant to represent is the sort of origin point for all of our our brain dead reprehensible modern apologetics of laissez-faire capitalism i mean i think i think that is the type that that dickens has tried to to evoke here yes and i don't respect i do not respect the paul ryan part one bit <laughs> P- p90x is bullshit you should be doing crossfit <laughs> uh, okay wow another another bold endorsement for the podcast <laughs> crossfit yeah yeah don't uh seriously yeah no, nothing nothing is smarter than uh doing olympic style lifts with heavy weights for speed uh i think any good <laughs> a- anyone who knows what they're doing would encourage you to do that not risking horrible back injury whatsoever um, lift with your back yes always lift with your back particularly your, your lower back, back. No, don't listen to that <laughs> lift with your leg stuff just yeah it's uh, a myth. <laughs> so, uh so scrooge used to have a partner uh this guy named jacob marley but as the very first lines of the novella tell us marley was dead to begin with um there 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 is no doubt whatever about that dead as a doornail um uh, uh, and th- this is important so i i hope you wrote that that bit down um so Scro- <laughs> did you poke him yeah did did you poke him uh, uh so, so scrooge tells cratchit uh that he can have christmas off but he's extremely fired if he's not at work uh early the uh, day after um and so then scrooge goes home to to this dank rotting house that he used to share with marley before the the deadness thing happened um it's disgusting there's like dirty moldy cheese everywhere uh bowls of oatmeal he just starts eating even though they might have been there for days <laughs> um, and uh which i do think like the dirtiness and dankness of that house is interesting uh because it really does signify what a cheap fuck he is um like i think he might be the only rich guy in all of 19th century british literature who has no servant in sight anywhere right no <laughs> he, ate, he ate the servant yes he ate the servant exactly um (laughs) but so uh tonight which is christmas eve when uh, when he goes home it's a little weird because he thinks he sees his door knocker turn into marley's face and this freaks him out uh as it should uh i mean i think that would be fairly unsettling uh but, (laughs) but but later when he's trying to go to bed uh the ghost of jacob marley appears to him and at first, uh, Scrooge tries to be admirably rational about this, uh, telling Marley he's more likely to be a hallucination brought on by, quote, an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of, uh, or of an underdone uh, potato. 
there's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. Uh, so, but I'm sorry, Dickens is fucking hilarious. Like, let let no one tell you otherwise. Even even in this very like hyper commercially focused kind of schlocky thing, he's he can be funny as fuck. Um, he can be funny. He thinks he's seventy five percent funnier than he is, though. Yes, I know. I yeah, absolutely. And sometimes the humor in Dickens is like probably very unintentional. Uh, but you know, it's it's <laughs> it's it's it's, it, it's good. Read Dickens. Don't don't let people tell you otherwise. Don't don't listen to Henry James on this. Um, no, or anything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but so anyway, you know, after that, like, oh, I, I think you're, you know, you're indigestion. Uh, Marley quickly sets him right. Uh, Marley tells him that he he better straighten up and fly right, or or Scrooge is going to wind up like Marley, uh, wandering the night loaded with chains and lock boxes. Uh, you know, which Marley refers to as the chain I forged in life. Meaning, you know, I was such a dickhead that now I have to carry this chain around to the afterlife. Um, you know, w- witnessing. Uh, what it cannot share, uh, the spirit, which is basically happiness and and opportunities uh, to do good that the spirit might have had in life. So, like, yeah, Marley's punishment seems to be like seeing like the, you know, like uh, basically poverty that he could have done something about, and then now he can't do anything about it. And uh, the deadness seems to have given him some sort of like conscience or sympathy that he he did not have as, uh, when he was living. Um, really changes you. Yeah, de- dying is yes, dying changes you. <laughs> changes you, right? Like, um, okay. So, uh, and, and uh, we know the rest from here, right? Like, uh, Marley tells Scrooge he'll be visited by three spirits: uh, Christmas past, uh, Christmas present, and Christmas yet to come. Um, the ghost of Christmas past shows us basically how things went wrong for Scrooge. Um, he had a neglected childhood. Um, he had a beloved sister that died. Um, and he becomes so in love with money that his fiance dumps him, which, you know, good for her. Um, uh, Christmas present shows him uh, joy that he's currently missing. Um, you know, he gets to see his nephew's family being all happy. Uh, uh, Bob Cratchit's family who are also happy despite uh, their poverty. And when he visits the Cratchits, we meet Tiny Tim, uh, who might be the the fam- most famous character other than Scrooge from this. Um, you know, who's their uh, the the Cratchit's son, um, and he is disabled. Uh, is the notes to my edition said that he probably or Dickens was probably thinking something like tuberculosis of the spine, which was not even something I knew existed, but all kinds of things existed in Victorian England. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and, and tiny Tim is an extremely Dickensian character, right? Like full on sentimental overboard, you know, that God bless us, everyone bit like that's yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. Like peak hyper Dickens. Um, and, uh, yeah. And, and, but seeing tiny Tim seems to affect, um, Scrooge a lot. Scrooge asks, uh, uh, the ghost of Christmas present, if tiny Tim's going to die and the spirit tells him that, yeah, basically if nothing changes, um, and uh, and then uh, Christmas yet to come shows Scrooge how Scrooge will die uh, seemingly relatively soon, and no one will give a fuck. Um, and Scrooge is now sufficiently sad and terrified. He wakes up. It's Christmas Day. He he bought. He's had a complete change of heart. Um, he buys the world's biggest turkey for the Cratchits and runs off to his nephew's house, uh, uh, cured of his cheapness and being an asshole. Um, and and also to to kind of uh, like ogle uh, his nephew's wife and her cousin. I think isn't that part of the story? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's part of the story. Yeah. And there's another part of the story, Tristan. The ghost of Christmas present. I'd like yes. to direct your attention to a little scene. Where the ghost of Christmas present lifts up his giant skirt to reveal two children under there. <laughs> yeah, yes, he does. 
He does. It's fucking Pizzagate shit. Yeah, it no, it it yes, it that is that is a very uncomfortable moment. Also, the ghost of Christmas present to me is like so the ghost of Christmas yet to come, he's basically like death, right? He wears this black shroud, he just he won't say anything, he just points to the grave. Um the ghost of Christmas past is like he basically he looks old and young at the same time that's kind of weird he has a light coming out of the top of his head which like oh, yeah. like scrooge try, scrooge gets pissed off at the light he put tries to like put that the, the the spirit's hat on so he can't see the light anymore <laughs> those are both those are both goofy but kind of like okay whatever the ghost of christmas present is full on crazy pants like he, oh he's this giant, like bare chested giant, but who's also mm-hmm. kind of doing a Santa Claus thing, although not quite. He's like Father, yeah, Father Christmas and Santa Claus at this uh, period are two kind of separate things from separate traditions. So, but he's like, he, so he's kind of like, yeah, he's like this Saturnalian figure. Like he has these kind of like mm-hmm. pagan resonances with the bare chested thing, but he's wearing like, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Titties out. Yeah, t- yeah, t- yes, exactly. He's <laughs> full, fully out, like uh, you know, like muscly, like somewhat eroticized. Uh, which again, that's really weird when we find the kids under <laughs> his, his yeah. robe. But uh, and he's got like ice icicles like hanging from his. Ri- it's he's a. It's just a very crazy, like uh, crazily conceived character. I think. Um, makes no goddamn sense but eh, i'm kind of into it yeah no i mean it's it's basically yeah it, it's 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 it, it, it he kind of tries to like embody every conceivable resonance of christmas like going all the way back to like the pagan period uh and yeah it's it's i don't know it's yeah it's nutty it's it's nutty it's very sexy <laughs> yeah yes i mean yeah <laughs> right you love to see a ghost just fully just just, just you know, bare chested. He Scrooge is riding around on his robe. Yep, uh, yep, exactly. Um, yeah, it, I, I don't know. Every time I reread this story, I am a little bit taken aback by that 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 description. Um, okay, so so should I kind of do the the context and why I think uh, you know it, it it would be fun to well one just yeah I think it's fun to talk about this story generally, but also like. For the purposes of a leftist literature podcast, why why we might have some things to say about it. Yes. Um, okay. So, like, I do think that Dickens has occasionally been unfairly maligned. Um, not so much during his lifetime, although I, there, there were definitely people who weren't really into what he was doing. Um, but he was, like, a massively popular author. Um, he, he cranked out a bajillion novels, novellas, sketches. Um, you know, in, in the explosion of print culture in Victorian Britain, um, he definitely figured out how to gain that system, right? Um, like he was, you know, serializing novels kind of to use uh, magazine technology effectively and kind of get a mass market that way. Um, he worked with, uh, with, uh, super famous illustrators like George Cruikshank, um, you know, which, which again, boosted, boosted, uh, sales a lot. Um, and, and he's had a solid stand base, uh, pretty much ever, ever, ever since he was writing. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, like Henry James thought it was sentimental schlock and he's, he's not wrong. Uh, I mean, he, kind of wrong, but he's not wrong. <laughs> um, uh, he, uh, Marxists have tended to not be that wild about him, um, because, and, and this is quite fair. Like his novels are definitely lib as fuck. Um, yes. uh, he, he's the great co- chronicler of the urban poor in Victorian Britain. 
Um, but a lot of his novels do have the impulse to treat poverty and economic inequality um, and the oppressive and extractive cr- structures of capital as primarily matters of individual intention and bad feeling uh, rather than kind of structural forces. And, and I think the, A Christmas Carol might be like the best example from Dickens of that. Like I say, some of his other novels, I think, are actually much uh, less into like a resolution around um, correcting bad feeling and more into like just focusing on the structures but christmas carol is definitely a very very hyper lib book i think um yeah it is interesting though and i'm sure we'll get to this later but just to quickly say that the bad feeling for dickens is not produced by like some kind of internal corruption it actually is fundamentally social which is like just important to yes maybe i i agree and that is why i think that even though his sort of resolutions might leave you if you know if if you are a a marxist as as you should be um uh, (laughs) like a little bit like what the fuck dude but but that like he that the sort of like structural critique and diagnosis is often actually quite quite good i think um um, but yeah, so like for the purpose of A Christmas Carol, the problem isn't so much that Scrooge is rich or that he's a boss uh, uh, and we should abolish both those things, uh, but it, it's that he doesn't feel rightly, you know, um, uh, and, and uh, yeah, and, and actually, so there's the, there's this great anecdote that I, I came across in the introduction to the edition I read, uh, which is this very lavish annotated Christmas Carol uh, uh, illust- uh, by, um, yeah, edited by, well, it's illustrated by uh, John Leach and, and edited uh, by, by, uh, uh, Michael, Michael Patrick Hearn. Um, and, and the introduction to that has, uh, it's this anecdote where there was a theatrical version of the cricket and the hearth, um, which was the subsequent, uh, <laughs> Dickens Christmas oh, book, okay. uh, kind of trying to follow the coattails of a Christmas Carol. So, uh, the cricket and the hearth was performed in Moscow in 1922 and Lenin got so pissed off that he walked out like in the first <laughs> act because he's just like, what the fuck is this shit, man? Like. He should have walked out when he heard the name of it. Yeah, I know. Maybe it sounds cooler in Russian. You know, I don't know. Oh, yeah. I'm sure the cricket in the heart <laughs> sounds very cool in other languages. Uh, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so like one reason why I thought it would be good to close out the first season of our, you know, Socialist Read Books podcast is because Dickens is extremely invested in showing us both the plight of the urban poor and the specific historical forces that are creating mass poverty um, as an endemic condition of capital. Um, and, you know, he like personally, he had compelling reasons for this, right? Like um, as a child, his dad was kind of like a, a little string of bad luck, um, you know, got sent to debtor's prison and young Charles had to go work in a boot blacking factory. Like he he was child. He did child labor like he, he saw that firsthand. Um, yeah. um, and, you know, the specific forms and structures of poverty in Victorian Britain um, was quite different from poverty in earlier periods um, and, and was being exacerbated by specific events and kind of ideological uh, forces and developments. And Dickens kind of drills into that uh, and, and into the consciousness of um, his, his, his uh, uh, petty bourgeois and, and bourgeois uh, readers um, through this highly mass marketed book culture um, that, that he made a ton of money off of. Right. So like he's right. definitely tried to market this like and, and be very successful at it. But that, you know, like that also then becomes a vehicle where he can sort of like get a, what I do think is a very serious sort of social critique into the mass market. So, you know, I mean, at, at both sides, right? <laughs> it's really, a, it's a both sides situation. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, as as all situations are. Yes, indeed. Um, so I, I, just two quick places uh, I think where where we see that historical specificity or or a critique of material and structural conditions in a Christmas Carol. Um, and so one, I, I want to take you back to that. Uh, are, are the workhouses uh, still an operation line? So the workhouse system was actually fairly new in 1843. Um, it was the result of uh, this law passed in eight, uh, 1834 called the New Poor Law, um, which tried to reform the old poor laws, which went back to the Elizabethan period. Um, and those uh, those older laws had basically made local church parishes legally responsible uh, for the support of the local poor. Um, mm-hmm. The new poor law uh, sort of centralizes everything and treats poverty as a failing, like a social failing, but really an individual failing. And it, it tries to, in this kind of, you know, uh, Michel Foucault sense, uh, bring bring the, the the poor under this kind of hellish system of state surveillance and exploitation. Um um, and then second, there, there's a there's a line early on where where Scrooge is telling the guys collecting for charity to get fucked um, when he says that uh, people who don't go to work, uh, uh, the people who won't go to workhouses should quote die and decrease the surplus population. Um, this is one of the you know famous like very you know ca- like intentionally over the top kind of callous lines, um, uh, and, and one that references an actual political argument in the world at the time, right? So um, Dickens here is often read as invoking a line of reasoning that goes back to a political economist of the uh, uh, earlier in the nineteenth century named Thomas Robert Malthus, um, whose essay on the principle of population which is this exceedingly bleak text that basically contends there's no way for food production to keep up with the 19th century explosion of population and, and urbanization. Um, and, uh, and, and, and yeah, that, that, that basically Malthus is like, we're, we're, we've gotten to a point where we're, there's no way we can feed the population. And, and it, it kind of has this like proto social Darwinist implication to it. Um, so yeah, I mean, a, a Christmas Carol is sentimental as fuck. It's mawkish as hell, um, but it is engaged with material conditions and and critique uh, of, of the way the nation is failing to actually address its growing numbers of of the poor um, in a way that I think is uh, it, it's just it's interesting to talk about. Yeah, I think there's a ton there. There's a, just a ton there. Um, you know, it's bleak. I think that text in particular is bleak because it's um um or like we're imagining the city as a thing that can become more modern and more modern but there are these like natural constraints that it's it's also that it's imagining that we can't get out of yes like we can industrial you know like yeah no definitely and he and and malthus is writing that like sort of like in the decade of like the, the radicalism of the 1790s like you know when the french revolution's going on um which we talked about all the way back with frankenstein um, where like uh, some people who have worked on the the kind of ideologies of Frankenstein, um, I'm thinking in particular of Maureen McLean, who I think we, we referenced on that show, that like Malthus is like the sort of conservative and reactionary pole against which like so that's one that's like that's one like the, the kind of right posi- like the right wing sort of position, uh, what we would think of as the right wing position, and then uh, Mary Shelley's dad William Godwin, who is this like awesome hippie radical who's like he, who, his idea was that basically like the world is endlessly reformable and, prog- and progress has this like kind of unlimited capacity and he's the sort of like left position right so that like frankenstein in it's sort of like wanting to think through revolution but being skeptical about how it could cohere that she's sort of trying to mediate between these kind of diametrically opposed positions uh, and malthus being the, the sort of the reactionary pole of that 
Yeah, and it's just funny how the, I mean, there's a relationship between uh, not only being, like, wanting to solve social problems and sentimentality, but also being reactionary and sentimentality. And so, like, these books that draw on, um, you know, the conservative theory, like, they they often have happier endings than stuff like Frankenstein that's trying to, that's trying to think through a different, um, you know, it's a meeting position, but certainly more radical position. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, oh yeah. And, and I also too, like, well, okay. So just, so it's a little bit clear to people who might, um, and not, you know, be that familiar with the period, uh, but why Malthus was kind of so freaked out in writing that. And, and then what we see Scrooge referencing with the, you know, what decrease the surplus population, like, so population from 1800 on like exploded, particularly in cities. Um, so like the population of, of Britain grows by about a third, I think between 1700 and 1800, between 1800 and 1900, it increases fourfold. Like it, it's just a, a a massive kind of explosion that, that's you know brought on by mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons. I think one of which has to do with uh you know the uh, the new economy sort of contra- uh, uh, con- uh, uh, condensing people in cities. Um, it just also like the the uh, the market forces are just bringing a lot more people together and and you know global circulation under the empire. Um, there, there's a lot of reasons that are feeding that, but it it's you know I mean when you think about like the population of of a country growing four times in a hundred years like that is like that that is a, a fairly remarkable historical historical condition right um yeah and just just the i mean the the experience of observing that right yes, like yeah like the numbers are staggering but it's also like oh what would that feel what, like what would it feel like to go from um you know sort of having having you know your life taking place in a space that's not filled with people versus that like it's very filled with people no definitely definitely and even if you um uh or maybe particularly if you were one of the kind of urban poor who had sort of like had to migrate into the cities from from the countryside right i mean you go from a world that's kind of where the life is the sort of village and production kind of takes place in the home to suddenly you're living in these like you know falling apart tenement blocks that you just go on for miles and miles and working yeah i mean it's just it's like uh I mean, not that in the you know tw- late twentieth, twenty first century, we haven't witnessed a lot of um, social transformations, like really important ones. But it's just, I don't know, it, it, that that's just kind of a such ex- such an extreme sort of experience that, like, how could it not, you know, super fuck people up about about the just how you experience the world, you know? But. Yeah, it just it just changes. I mean, not to like ro- you know, not to romanticize Victorian era village life. No, but- oh, no, no. It, it just creates these really different, I think, networks of dependency than people were used to. And they're also like these, these networks are, are failing because, um, you know, the state uh, is not willing to step in and fill the role. Yes, exactly. Um, and uh, to Katie's point that about not romanticizing uh, Victorian village life, uh, you, you definitely a plug here for Raymond Williams, the country and the city where he talks very much about the, the, the sort of the, yeah. the, the corrosive fantasy of this like idyllic country past that Britain has, uh, has failed by, by doing this like ur- urbanization thing. Um, yeah. It's like a, it's like a, it's an experience of, of, 
it's like a shocking experience to go from thing A to thing B, but no, which is not to say like thing A is older, so better. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Exactly. Uh, um, yeah. So I like, I think maybe one place then for us to start uh, would be to just think a little bit about um, what, how we think the novel's constructing poverty, like what, what sort of problem it thinks that it is, um, you know, whether it's like an individual thing or a social thing. Um, and how it's felt and experienced. Um, and, and also just like what we can say about the politics of this novella. If, if we think it, yeah, just what we think about that. Okay. So one place we might start actually is thinking about the place of the rich, mm-hmm. right. To see like how, how the poor get constructed because they're, they're totally entwined. Mm-hmm. And so What's interesting here is we have this super rich character who won't share and also won't use anything. Mm-hmm. So he's not like gold toilet guy. Right. He lives like he's poor. Right. So what do we make of that? Like, how do we deal with a character who, who on the surface shows very little difference between himself and the poorer characters, but sort of everybody talks about how rich he is. And that's the only way we know. Yeah. That, so that's an, that's a really interesting question. And I don't think I had thought uh, about it in precisely those terms, but, but I think you're very right. Like that he, like, so Scrooge is described as a, in addition to being like rich, and, and an asshole he's a miser right like and, and you're right that he just he hoards money he doesn't uh there's like no outflow there uh whereas like i you know there are like there like so um one thing i didn't mention in the, the summary uh is trying to keep it condensed is when we do the the ghost of christmas past right um, we see uh, when at this moment when Scrooge is an apprentice to this guy named Fezziwig, um, <laughs> who is like, uh, yeah, he he has some some sort of commercial operation, and um, but he like you know he stops work, uh, at, you know, at Christmas time so that he and his employees can have this big lavish party, right? Like, and and he and he is like he's kind of I think this uh we, we like the 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 novella gives us uh Fezziwig. Um, so that we can sort of see a model of like a, a rich person who isn't doing the Scrooge thing and that, that, that the novel's like okay with like it's it's okay with uh with 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 Fezziwig and like you know being like rich and beneficent um in a way that it's not with like Scrooge and being like rich and a miser and it doesn't really so the problem is not richness itself or like that the disparities in wealth it is um like kind of what you do with it right Right. Yes. And it's like also Fezziwig is like a nice guy who's also still exploiting his two like interns, basically. Yes. Yes. You know, like they they sleep in the they they sleep in the shop. Like, yeah, they sleep in fact under the calendar, I think, of the shop, right? Like Which yes, which is like it, just like he's got him in like I picture like morgue drawers actually that they're sleeping in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so it's like it, it just seems like all it's all that it the the story is concerned with is the like is these gestures is these is like it's the turkey and we're told that scrooge at the end is gonna be is gonna like support tiny tim and make sure he doesn't die um and that but that's not gonna change scrooge's life at all and it's not gonna change society it's gonna change it's gonna change like something he's like making He's repairing a family wrong. Yes. That, he's not 
looking at it as a social condition. No, and and yeah, and it it does because like your response, particularly as someone with wealth to poverty, like yeah, it, it's a problem of like individual morality, right? Like, do you do you do you have the right feeling towards this? Are you willing to extend charity and generosity, and not it, it, yeah, it's not not like a structural condition that like we as like as that as, that as a society it needs to work to address. And I will say like I. That I don't think is true across all of Dickens' novels. Like, like you know, like uh, I, I mean, I, I get like I think a lot of them do still want to resolve at the level of like individual charity, and it doesn't. They don't really offer space for like, well, fuck it, let's blow up the system and rebuild it. But like you know, even things like Oliver Twist, which also is very like mawkish in some ways, or Hard Times, like they really do want you to look at the structures that are producing them, even if like the resolution still is like, well, maybe if we could get like individual to be better like about it than like that that will make things themselves better you know yeah that so that's actually that's a great point and it's like that sort of helps me understand something which is why dickens does this like he's he does this almost allegory slippage sometimes where like you know he has like a character who's named like mr square mm-hmm. pants yeah, yeah. who's very who's who's like he looks like a square yes, you know yeah. um and so I think that maybe that is his way of of having a novel and also it, like not doing allegory, but like at least slipping into like a symbolic register that lets us see something about like this is a social problem. There are uh, there are Scrooge is so un uh, like I don't know. Um, He's so miserly Mm -hmm. that he points to something like everybody has a little bit of that in them. Yes. Yes. No, definitely. Um, and yeah, and and that, that that too. Like so, the I, I there is you're right too about like the the construction, at least the nod towards like allegory. Uh, so actually, maybe I could just read a little bit of the description of like Fessy Wig's uh, ball for the, his dance party for his his employees. Um, because like if you remember, I like my what I said about Scrooge's house. Like that is absolutely true, right? It's like dark, no servants. There are cobwebs everywhere. There really are bowls of like rotting oatmeal that he's just left around that he starts eating. Like it is a disgusting play and you know it's 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 like it's hundreds of years old it hasn't been like renovated in any way but um uh, but so this is Fe- so Fezziwig's shop right this is this is uh this is uh from stave two the, the, for the first of the three spirits um and they've been working you know very hard as as, as katie said they like uh you know, he is still, he does still have this kind of exploitative, like, boss relationship with his apprentices. But uh, we have this break. Uh, so, yo-ho, my boys, said Fezziwig. No more work tonight. Christmas Eve, Dick. Christmas, Ebenezer. Let's have the shutters up, cried old Fezziwig with a sharp clap of his hands. Before a man can say Jack Robinson. You wouldn't believe how those two fellows went at it, exclamation point. Uh, they, they charged into the street with the shutters. One, two, three. Had them up in their places. Four, five, six. Barred them and pinned them. Seven, eight, nine. And came back before you could have got to twelve, panting like racehorses. Hi-ho, cried old Fezziwig, skipping down from the high desk with wonderful agility. Clear away, my lads, and let's have lots of room here. Hilly-ho, Dick. Cheer up, Ebenezer. Clear away. There was nothing they wouldn't have cleared away or couldn't have cleared away with old Fezziwig looking on. It was done in a minute. Every movable was packed off as if it were dismissed from public life forevermore. The floor was swept and watered. The lamps were trimmed. Fuel was heaped upon the fire. And the warehouse was as snug and warm and dry as a bright ballroom as you would desire to see upon a winter's night. 
In came a fiddler with a music book and went up to the lofty desk and made an orchestra of it and tuned it like 50 stomach aches. Uh, it, <laughs> that's hilarious. Lie. That is funny. Um, in, in came Mrs. Fezziwig, one vast, substantial smile. In came the three Miss Fezziwigs, beaming and lovable. In came the six young followers uh, whose hearts they broke. In came all the men and women employed in business. In came the housemaid with her cousin, the baker. In came the cook with her brother's particular friend, the milkman. In came the boy from over the way who was suspected of not having bored enough from his master, trying to hide himself behind the girl from next door, but but one who was proved to have had her ears pulled by her mistress. In they all came one after another, some shyly, some boldly, some gracefully, some awkwardly, some pushing, some pulling. In they all came anyhow and everyhow. Um, so like, yeah, I, I mean, like did Fezziwig is still clearly the boss. Like he's directing all of this. Um, and, and like there's, you know, we, we get these various uh, gradations of society. I kind of want to like, yeah, it's, it looks like we're doing a part, uh, a partridge in a pear tree at the end of yeah. that, right? Um, but so like, it, it's very, like, there's definitely a clear social hierarchy here, but it's like, oh, but look, he's, he's like, he's taking a break from work. It's not like now, you know, he's, he's investing in like fun being had and, you know, and that like, so, so, th- so this is like the allegorical ideal type of what a capitalist should do. Whereas Ebenezer and his miserliness just completely upsets that and, and, and fails in like what the novel or the novella is positing is like the responsibility of, of a boss and a rich person. Right. And it's yes. And it's also like in order to have fun, in order to have fun, when your boss says like, oh, it's time to it's time to let loose, let your hair down and party. It's like immediately what they do. Their first act of partying is to like, let's clean up real fast. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes, exactly. It's like he's get he's kind of tricking them into doing more or not tricking them, but he's getting them to do more labor under the auspices of, yeah. of like, because it's, this is for you. I'm going to throw a party. It's like, or, you know, they just knock off and go get drunk by themselves and not have to deal with their annoying ass boss, you know, but like, no, yeah. It's just like, he, he's, he's making, he's letting them go to the party. It's like, Oh, I want to invite you to this party. Uh, where you're, you get to come to the company party, and all you have to do is, um, you know, run hors d'oeuvres for like twenty minutes, and then you can just like have like let it rip, you know, have fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing that's interesting about that passage, like as you said, it's, it's kind of like a grab bag partridge in a pear tree type situation. <laughs> yeah. But the, the funny thing about it is, it's doing so much work with people's weird relationships in such a short amount of time. Oh, and it's like the responsibility, not only of, um, you know, of Scrooge to be, to be better to people, like more generous mm-hmm. to people, but it's also like, you know, Scrooge's dad was a dick and nobody wanted to be friends with him when he was a kid. Right. And there's all this stuff, like he, he would, he's been beaten down in this way that's different than, um, these other characters in, in the story who have no money, mm-hmm. but he, he, um, he is isolated in the way that the story wants to say is bad all around. Yes. I know. I, I think that's, I think that's right. Um, and, and again, I think this goes back to like our question about how this novella wants us to think about structures and material conditions and the individual's relationship to that right like so it wants it acknowledges up front that like 
shitty things happen and are kind of like an endemic feature of reality and maybe even like exacerbated by this specific moment of like um of of, of, of a specific historical moment and like the kind of uh, the, the 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 ruptures of of, of of emergent capital but like it also wants to then say that like those are reparable at least at the individual level by the correct posture towards the world right like so scrooge has experienced this loss his dad was shitty uh like yeah his, his life is characterized by loss what the problem that and which is which is a and like that it, that none of that is his fault and the novella does not construct it as such but what it does construct as his as his fault is that he has tried to fill that hole through like acquisition gain, like an intense focus on, 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 on money. And, and that is it rather than like, well, okay, shitty things can happen, but like, Hey, but you know, you had this good relationship with Fezziwig and Fezziwig was like, he could kind of be like the surrogate father model for you. If only you had done that, you wouldn't be so miserable and lonely, but you, you took the wrong lessons from, from life as to how you respond to, 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 to lack and to loss. Right. Yes. And it's totally unclear also where that happened. Yes. So we skip forward in time from the Fezziwig stuff to his fiance dumping him because all he cares about is money. Yes. You know, and so there's no like, like what, like what happened? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that like, I mean, so Dickens loves types, right? Like he he loves types. I mean, uh, Katie, what you were saying was about um, um, uh, like like that. Yeah, that he has these names, like Mister Square Pants, right? Like or uh, or my my favorite mm-hmm. character from from Hard Times, uh, Mister uh, Mister Grad Grind. The uh, oh, yeah. yes. <laughs> so he like and like so you know that he he isn't always into doing the novelistic thing of fully realized characters but holy fuck there aren't there's nothing even approaching a fully realized character in this text right like and, and you're right like we just skip from he's having fun at Hefezi Wig's ball to his fiance is like listen I'm gonna dub you if you don't like get your face out of your ledger book and there's there's nothing there yeah there's no like expository work to how we got to that state for the character uh, because I don't think the, the novella gives a fuck about character you know what I mean like no yeah I don't I don't think it does it just so it creates these like it creates these pairings yeah so we have Scrooge and we have Tiny Tim and that's what changes Scrooge because he's the perfect antidote to um you know his his miserliness like he awakens this well of compassion in him where I guess his partnership with Marley has like dug him in more to being himself Mm -hmm. And who knows, actually, if like implicitly we're supposed to think that him getting together with Marley in business is actually what produced that like rupture with the fiance, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm just I'm doing fanfic now. But. No, but yeah, but right. And, and like I and, and and which is yeah, I mean, that would be that could potentially be interesting. Um, And I think like, yeah, I mean, maybe that, you know, maybe we could speculate that that's what happened uh, happened. Um, and, and, you know, like sometimes text will create that uh, that sort of like vagueness to invite the reader to do that speculation. I wonder though if like Dickens even wants us to, you, you know what I mean? That like you're, that yeah. that's like a level of interpretive work that Dickens is like, you know, the, the point is this guy is a miser and he sucks. We we don't really have to have to give, and, and I've given you enough of like, oh, he had a he had a bad childhood and that this was his response to that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it's just what's weird to me is that he has this deep well of 
compassion in him that is awakened so fast. Like the moment that he sees um, somebody like, you know, he immediately like the first ghost, he already regrets not having given money to the, you know, like the guys or not having like been nice to the guy singing Christmas carols. Right. Like it's an immediate, um, like he feels bad instantaneously. Like that's already present. He doesn't need the three ghosts to get the lesson. He sort of gets it immediately. And at each little instance, like he feels bad when he sees the fiance, uh, or he like re-experiences what happened with fiance. He feels sad for himself when he looks at himself as a child, who's like really excited by reading and like fantasy and he's lonely. Um, So it's like all just, it's like, it's like right. It's like very, very low level under the surface. And that's what surprised me when I read this, this time was because I was like, well, why are there, why are there three ghosts? Like one probably would have done. Yes. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah, no, it is. Yeah. And, and I, I I like the, to, to go to the, the, the moment where like, yeah, yeah, he does it right. It, it like the, the ghosts do not seem to have to do much work to draw forth this kind of latent kind of sympathetic capacity, right? Like, yeah, the exact, exact. I, I completely agree with that, right? Like, so, and uh, and yeah, so like um, uh, the the moment when he's with, he's he's seen the Cratchits, he's with the ghost of of of, uh, of Christmas present, and uh, and he's 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 uh, well, first of all, he's he's been kind of like. Uh, it's sort of like staggered a little bit by the fact that like the well, so Bob Cratchit's wife hates Scrooge and like, and, 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 but but Bob Cratchit's like, no, no, like we still gotta gotta drink his health and all that, and and Scrooge is like, oh well, that's nice, I guess. Um, and well, so anyway, yeah, so t- so Tiny Tim sitting on his father's lap, and God bless us, everyone, uh, said Tiny Tim, the last of all. He sat very close to his father's side upon his little stool. Bob held his withered little hand in his as if he loved the child and wished to keep him by his side, and dreaded that he might be taken from him. Spirit, said Scrooge, with an interest he had never felt before, tell me if Tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat, replied the ghost, in the poor chimney corner, and a crutch without an odor, carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, uh, the child will die. No, no, said Scrooge. Oh, no, kind spirit, say he will be spared. If these shadows remain unchanged, unaltered by the future, none other of my race, returned the ghost, uh, will fight him here. What then? If he be like to die, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Damn, throwing Scrooge's words right back in his face. Uh, but it is, it's like, it, it, yeah, very telegraphy, like not in any subtle way that it's like, um, the point of showing you all this, Scrooge, is so that you have time to correct your, uh, you know, your, 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 uh, your, your feelings and approach the world rightly. And then all of this can be put to right. You know, it, it is not a subtle book at all. But uh, but to, to your point, Katie, yeah, it's like he like Scrooge's change of heart feels so like under motivated, given like what we you know like the degree of asshole we've been told that he is. Um, that it's a little like yeah, and I think my suspicion is like again, this novella just does not care that much about character and characterology. You know, I also just wonder like what is it supposed to be saying about um showing versus telling mm-hmm. right scrooge is really unmoved by people telling him that uh you know there are so there are tons of poor people um you should give you should give money to them right and he's like fuck he's like fuck off but then he 
he gets his own when he has that moment of of um compassion for a particular person he is then like horrified by the implications of what he has said about a lot of people yes exactly so that's so there is something interesting that dickens is doing with um you know, like how you make a social intervention. Yes. And, and I think too, that what I see there and like, you know, a, a ton about the, the sentimental novel in, in the 19th century is it, you know, across the Atlantic. Um, it has a, the sentimental novel has this earlier 18th century moment in Britain that is kind of way before Dickens time, although like not in like, so kind of like the sentimental novel is a thing in America, right? Like a contemporaneous to Dickens in a way that it was not current in Britain. It was kind of like an earlier thing. Mm-hmm. But 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 my but like I think that it is engaged with a sort of like sentimental technology and, and so just to be clarify like uh, our terms right like so this, the sentimental novel like emerges in Britain in the mid 18th century uh, has to do with a lot of like philosophical discourse around like feeling and like the intersection of like feeling and kind of uh, morality uh, Adam Smith and and like kind of David Hume people like that are thinking about it. And basically, it's these novels that construct these like really overwrought seeds of like weeping and like sad and just that like really are super invested in producing an emotional response in the reader. Um, And that like that uh, like for a lot of reasons, I mean, like uh, some sentimental novels are kind of critiquing the philosophy around it, but like. It also has like super like political valences, um, particularly I'm thinking like, and this happens on both sides of the Atlantic, right? With uh, with like abolition, like kind of uh, like and the abolitionist movement, like kind of like you know using the novel as a way of like producing this emotional response to like the suffering of slavery in like a white audience with the idea that then you take that feeling and you get them, you know, that that you can translate that then into like political action. And and that that showing versus like telling thing, I think, is part of it. Like, I mean, obviously in a novel, it is kind of telling you because you're reading it, but it is trying to like illustrate this sort of like um yeah, these conditions of like oppression that 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 you like to vi- to make you visualize it in a way that you will have an emotional response where if you're just hearing like facts and figures from a report on like poverty, you might not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's there's two things. Yeah, that's like that's all super, super important. Absolutely. Um, to kind of echo what you're saying, um, there are two good examples that I can think of, which is, and I, I think kind of as we talk about the like producing right feeling, it's kind of, I think it's important to at least mention the fact that the most famous kind of quote about that, that, that gets talked about in the American context with the sentimental novel is Harriet Beecher Stowe. Mm-hmm. She says in Uncle Tom's Cabin, this very famous quote, um, there's one thing that every individual can do. They can see to it that they feel right. Mm-hmm. An atmosphere of sympathetic influence encircles every human being. And the man or woman who feels strongly, healthily, and justly on the great interests of humanity is a constant benefactor to the human race. Right. And so that's sort of as far as she takes it. There's another thing happening, which is related to what you're saying, which is um, we have, so uh, Gregory Jackson at Rutgers, who, um, who we mentioned in a previous episode, who wrote the word in his witness talks about things like sort of like poverty tours as, um, as a virtual tour experience that was spiritually important Mm -hmm. so 
not just related to poverty, but also related to like any kind of social ill, you should experience it at, you should experience it virtually to get some kind of simulation of firsthand knowledge without actually sort of like, you know, um, diving too deep. Yeah into it yeah and and so and and i think that like um that, yeah that that's really that's really helpful that stoke quote in particular i think yeah that that really that sort of like captures a, a super important ethos um not not just for like what stowe was trying to do but i think that that broadly characterizes what a lot of sentimental writers are trying to do but like so in, in what you just said i think you can see the sort of like left skepticism towards it right that it is like it is constructing like this these problems as as primarily uh, at least at the level of how you might repair them at like the level of the individual. Can you get the individual reader to have a response to this um, and then build like some sort of like politics from that? Um, and, and that, yeah. And so like it, it doesn't, it sort of like moves from the structural to the individual in a way that I think if you're a leftist, you're like that. I, you know, we know, <laughs> like stay with the structure of, you know, Richard Wright, when we finally talk about Native Son, like, you know, he, you know, he was kind of, like, uh, he, not that uh, like Uncle Tom's children had like, you know, was a metal novel but he he sort of like he saw like all these um the uh you know the, these kind of like white liberal readers who like had these like very powerful like, oh this is so moving and he's like oh yeah no like i you're you're not like you i'm not gonna let you just have this bad feeling or like not this bad feeling but feel badly for these characters and then think like oh well so that means i'm a good person and my work is done um i, I i'm gonna actually force you to kind of think and, and stay focused on the structure which I mean, as a, you know, as a leftist myself, I mean, I to- I totally understand it and and uh, that that critique. But I mean, I also think like the sentimental novel did have really important political efficacy at certain moments. Like it definitely was a a. a crucial force of like um the abolitionist uh of abolitionist discourse you know i mean that uh lincoln i, I think it's lincoln has that famous quote uh, to stow that you're the uh Archie, the, the little lady that started this this great big war or something like that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and 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 i also think that like sort of responses to poverty again very liberal responses to poverty uh but uh, in the 19th century like yeah i mean there was like it's not as though the genre was completely dead of political Effect. I think it just didn't have the sort of structural um, effects that we as like Marxist readers might want it to. It counts on the important thing about it, for me at least, is that it counts on a specifically Christian orientation toward um, to the world. And what I mean by that is there's this idea that justification leads to sanctification, mm-hmm. But that sanctification doesn't tell you anything about the state of your soul. And so mm. what that means essentially is that like if you're so um, so justification is the internal experience of so, or the inter- the state of um, of grace and salvation and sanctification is relates to works. Mm. And so it's like so if you know there's not like a necessary relationship between the two of them actually like you can be saved and do nothing Mm. um, because it's just it's entirely arbitrary uh for calvinists but also that probably we have all these good ways of guessing and that in most cases justification you know being saved uh leads to good works Mm -hmm. all like there's a pipeline between the two things and if you if you don't buy into that 
then there's a huge problem with this. Right. Yeah. Yeah, right. No, that, that yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That there 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 is there there's definitely there are definitely ideological and and theological sort of structures around it, which I think Dickens is is clearly drawing on. I mean, not not that this is a really explicitly religious text. Um I don't think it is. I mean, I think it's commercial ability no. would would undercut that. But but I think that like there are sort of assumptions of the kind that you're you're describing uh like the coming out of that version of protestantism that like are sort of like kind of baked in um in, in a way that like maybe for more modern readers or for readers whose kind of ideology is 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 not necessarily in that kind of like sort of like liberal christian tradition um that that it might it might just make it kind of a harder pill to swallow or you might just like you might not be as on board with the 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 um you know how, like how it's trying to frame these these uh, these problems and inquiries um, as as someone who is is in that mode would would be and just kind of intuit as like yes I mean this is this is kind of the world you know. To- no, totally, totally, and and I'm so uh, like I'm certainly not making this defense personally, but I will say that like you can in good faith say that if you have had what you think is right feeling and you are just swallowing in it and you're not doing anything, then actually you've mistaken yourself as having right feeling. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, that, 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 the, the, the idea that like the sentimental novel produces an emotional effect and then you as a reader are like, I'm done. I felt badly for this person. So therefore I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a good person that like, I don't, there's not many sentimental novelists who had been had like, yep, you totally got what I, I'm glad you had a good cry. Now go on your merry way and don't think any more, right. more of this, you know, like. Yeah. I think there's like a fear of catharsis. Yeah. That like leads to, you know, if you blow your whole wad crying, then you're not going to do anything. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so like, I think one way in which like maybe sort of like, uh, you know, material conditions or structural reality is present in this text, um, uh, is, uh, very present is like, just with London itself, right? Like I kind of think of the city as a character in this, uh, in, in this novella, um, and uh like just like the kind of the dankness and 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 dirtiness of 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 everything uh like it it is super foggy right like it it, Mm -hmm. like we we get these descriptions of the fog pouring in through like the keyholes um and and, like yeah even in the the very first uh the very first chapter stave one uh the fog and darkness thickened so the people ran about with flaring links like torches uh uh, proffering uh their services to go before horses and carriages and conduct them on their way um yeah the the the, uh we just get all this kind of this dagness and dirty of the urban space uh even like in one of the uh, uh i think it's christmas present like uh the ghost takes scrooge out to see the street and like everyone's being very like sort of merry uh, right uh and there's all this activity <laughs> but it's like it makes reference to just like the grayness of everything too and and so it's kind of like the 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 the, the efforts of the the population to have this kind of festive moment are sort of set against the sort of environmental conditions um and i just wanted to note that like yeah. I, I actually think that what we're seeing there um and, and maybe i don't know how attuned dickens necessarily would have been to that is like kind of environmental effects of industrial capital right like um the famous london fog was 
smog essentially like it was uh it, part of like what produced it was um was just that uh all of the fireplaces of the city were burning coal um and it like actually like really dire effects like there there was a there was an event uh, about a century later this uh, uh i think called the great london smog of i think 1952 so this is like right after the war yeah. we're like thousands of people died it's just like essentially what happened was this weather weather pattern set in that trapped all the coal smoke and like yeah it was like thousands and thousands of people uh died because of like uh like uh, like a weather event that is like made that that makes um um it like the effects of industry just like so so deadly um and and like but that was already happening in the 1840s and i think that that actually is sort of you know it's it's an important background for the story you know Yes, this seems like a digression, but I promise it's not. Um, in the in the Netflix show The Crown, they they talk about that. Um, mm-hmm. and what happens is when the when the the smog sets in, uh, this this endearing character is running across the street and she gets hit by a bus because because it doesn't see yeah. her, and that sort of like encapsulates I think part of what's going on, which is like we have this smog, we have this fog we have the effects of uh you know this like massive industry and coal and just like belching shit into the air and like people couldn't wear light colored clothes because they'd come back in and be gray. yeah and so like it's but it's also this thing is like it's a good uh it's a really good metaphor because it separates people from one another like sort of in this way that's um it's not it's not a substantial physical separation or barrier but it's like i can't see other people uh because there's this cloud right and so um there's some there's like there's a lot you can do with it i mean i know it's a real historical thing but it's also like it's a it's a helpful device which i think is maybe why it appears so much yeah here yeah and it yes i i I agree with all of that um yeah that that the that moment from the crown uh which i'll have to check that out is is super interesting Um, i've read descriptions that like they had to close down movie theaters because like you couldn't see indoors like which is just that's like smog that is inside is just crazy uh but but yeah and like yeah it separates people and it just creates this kind of like it gives like reality this like dreamscape feel but that is hellish you know it's like yeah it's Mm -hmm. like we're like we're, we're living yeah we are living in this sort of like this hell that is the product of human activity and 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 industry you know um yeah and it's like it's in the air it's social it dictates everything that's going on socially uh it mediates and you take it into your body you wear it on your body mm-hmm. uh it gets into your you know you can't keep it out mm-hmm. yeah um, exactly um yeah. Uh so that we uh, I know we're we're about out of time. Uh so we should probably get to our our uh, our final closing questions of the 2019 inaugural season. Um before we do that, I do, I just want to say like um and I I know I you know I think I speak for 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 Megan with this as well. Um uh, just how much fun that I have had with this um you know that like I legitimately am prouder of this podcast than any creative uh or academic uh work 
work like scholarship that I've produced. Um, it's just so great every week to get to talk with you guys um, about um, these these texts that are like really interesting and fucked up and weird and, and get you know give me all kinds of ways of thinking about the world. Um, and 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 but and to have those conversations with like really really smart people uh, who do have like a scholarly background, but that are not stuck in that mode of like very kind of self reverential sort of like academic ease uh, and in, in academic insularity that I think we often uh, unfortunately do. Um, so I, I just, I love doing this. Uh, I can't wait to start the new season again. I think, you know, we're, we, we remain as excited about this, this, this podcast as, as we were when we, when we started it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I 100% sign on to all of that. And I just feel like, oh, doing this is a source of a huge amount of joy just personally for me. Um, I love doing this with with you and Megan. And I'm also just always, uh, it's, it's always so surprising and thrilling when people say that they, like, I know people listen to the show, but it's like, oh, it, I would do this. I would do this anyway. And it's just like, it's amazing that so many cool, smart people also are listening. I to know. It. I had. I had. Um, I, I had yeah. no expectation of like people listening to it, and then like the people are, and people we don't even know. You know, it's like it's that's crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> um, and I, but I agree. If this was just the three of us every week, like having these conversations, I would still totally do it. Uh, but I, I love the fact that other people are uh, are engaging with it, and you know, are interested in what we have to say, and 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 we love hearing from our listeners too. So this this I you know, suit like like yeah, I can't. I, yeah, and I can't thank our listeners enough. I can't thank you guys enough. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, and, and yeah, I, I'm super looking forward to starting our new season, uh, which actually Katie and I will be, uh, will be getting down to that in just a couple weeks. So, um, yes, the huge thank, thank you. I want to thank you and Megan and thanks to everybody who listens. And, um, yeah, I'm just, I just love doing this. It's, it's, it is absolutely the most fun thing the most fun project that I've ever been fortunate enough to be a part of. Indeed. Um, so uh, that was in keeping with the sentimental tradition. <laughs> yes. So uh, All right, now, now let's go back to being uh, jerky socialists who uh, don't like uh, feelings of that, of that kind. Uh, but, but yeah. so, do you want to, yeah, do you want to take it outside for a minute and just do like a Hemingway esque slap fight so we can just kind of get yes, back exactly. into the, uh, yeah, let's, let's do that. Uh, no, let's. Uh, so, let, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited for the, the the closing questions. What what do you got for us this week, Katie? Okay, so um, one thing that happens a lot in a Christmas Carol that we didn't uh, talk too too much about, um, but that's that that lends itself well to a closing little game, is that there is a ton of uh, party games and mm-hmm. grab assing. <laughs> so there are just huge passages where they like eat giant dinners and then. Um, like play blind man's bluff and like run around the house. And, um, you know, like there's always some obligatory boob honking between people who are like into each other, uh, like all these games. It's a mess. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot of games and it turns out that, uh, that this is historical reality that, um, people, you know, in Dickens time played a lot of just dumb as fuck games. And a lot of them are extremely weird. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them have extremely weird names. And so what we're going to do 
uh, Tristan, I'm going to victimize you slightly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm going to give you the names of two games of the era. Mm-hmm. And you are going to tell me, just based on the name, which one you'd prefer to play. Okay. It, All right. And if you want to kind of if you want to guess what it is, that's fine. But if you don't, that's fine too. You can just sort of sort of just, you know, pick your poison. And then there are also some so so what happened uh when you lost a game in this in this time of great barbarism was that you would have to to do a forfeit. Mm-hmm. And so it's like it's like a funny, it's like a funny little, uh, little punishment for the loser, mm-hmm. um, which is like eh, a little fucked up. <laughs> um, so anyway, I'm going to, uh, and I've, I read the, about this in an, <laughs> in an old ass Victorian book and they refer to the forfeits. The forfeits come under the household amusements category. <laughs> okay. Okay. So just to kind of set that up for you. All right. Um, gotcha. This, this is going to be goofy as hell. <laughs> it is going to be goofy as hell. Uh, and the, the games are more ridiculous than you could even possibly imagine. <laughs> okay. So, um, okay. So number one is, uh, would you rather bullet pudding hmm. or hot cockles? <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. Uh I mean I do like a good pudding. Uh okay. like, but but I mean a uh, uh, hot I don't know. I'm 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 intrigued and a little scared to find out what hot cockles is. So I'll 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 pick that one. Okay, hot cockles. Uh I wouldn't have gone with hot cockles. Um <laughs> 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 So uh what happens during a game of hot cockles is that somebody sits in a chair and then somebody else, uh, the the person who's it, puts their head in that person's lap. Okay. And then everybody else at the party comes up behind them and kicks them. <laughs> okay. And you ask, you may, you may ask, uh, you may ask, where's the game in this? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, the point is, that you you want to guess who kicked you. And if you guess and if you guess who kicked you, then that person has to be the new person who's getting kicked. Oh. Well, I just have to say like everyone's like, "Oh, the Victorians were so so re- repressed." It's like, yeah, they were also fucking freaks, man, you know? <laughs> like yeah. like, they, like this wow, okay. Uh, that's some game. Uh, that that's some game. Okay, so what? So now, so now, what am I? So 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 what? So what do we do with this now? Okay, so you've just, you've you've picked you picked hot cockles. Yes. Okay, yeah. and so you just. I mean, I'm just telling you. Uh, there's one choice that's fucked up more than the other choices, and or that's more than the other choice, and so. Um, you're, you're, I would say the loser on this one, but you can, you can argue me because bullet pudding, um, is when you get a huge dish and you put two feet of flour on it. Do you know about bullet pudding? No, I don't. You put two, two feet of flour on it. So pudding, no pudding. And you put a bullet at the top of the pudding. Okay. And then everybody, uh, goes around and pokes the flour. Yeah. And the bullet falls into the into it, falls deep into it. Okay. And okay. Then, the, then the person okay. who caused it 
then yeah. has to put their hands behind their back and shove their face into the flower and retrieve <laughs> the bullet with their teeth. Okay. So uh, I guess then with the the hot cockles basically it is it's a it's a it's a shame and humiliation situation which i mean look hey james joyce would have played the fuck out of hot cockles <laughs> right like uh which you know i mean okay that's you know like that that uh you know, that's not everyone's bag uh i will say it has the the virtue of avoiding lead poisoning yes. <laughs> though uh or breaking your teeth in an era when there was not really anesthetics for any sort of dental work and they didn't even really have dental work to speak of so i actually think that i, I won that round to be honest you know what i'm actually i'm gonna go with you on this i'm gonna go with you on this yeah um yeah and so and so here's what i actually propose right um Mm-hmm. So, so you got this right. And if you, and if you get the majority of these questions, right, then, uh, we don't have to play any of these Victorian era games when you, me and Megan all get together. But if, <laughs> if you get a majority of them wrong, and we, again, we can debate, we, we have to, we, we have to, uh, choose one and do it. And we, we can do listener's okay. choice. <laughs> I think that, I think that's okay. fair. So here's your, here's number two. You, your two choices are the bellman hmm. or the minister's cat. <laughs> I, I have no idea what either of those are going to be, uh, but I, the minister's cat sounds a little goofier. So let's go with that one. Minister's cat. Okay. Th- you made the right choice on this one too. Um, because the bellman is basically everyone's blindfolded. And somebody runs around ringing a bell behind them and they have to try to like, like grab, grab the bellman. So you, so that's the worst one. Okay. Because, (laughs) because the minister's cat is just, um, you just describe the minister's cat using, uh, going around like letters of the alphabet. So you do like the minister's cat is an asshole, a bitch, a cunt, a dick. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay um that's not I, what that was done yeah <laughs> okay yeah um yeah no i i think yeah i i, I agree that, that the other one too like in an air like people had like oil lamps and gas flames and you're running around blindfolded and that, that just that doesn't sound safe no, <laughs> frankly no, you know? not a good idea <laughs> yeah I agree. Minister's cat. That that's how that sounds fine. It's a it's like uh oh god, what's that awful game that people think is funny but it's just fucked up? The uh uh cards against humanity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. 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 It's just people have always been terrible and they still are. Um Yes. Yes. So here's the last game and then I'll give you two forfeits. Um Okay. Okay. I gotcha. So your choice in this one is twirling the trencher. or snapdragon see okay uh yeah that uh i i what all of these games sound vaguely like euphemisms for masturbation kind of yeah uh twirly the trencher or or snapdragon uh yeah uh uh, okay uh, yeah, let, let's go with twir- twirling the old trencher. <laughs> oh, you you also made the re- Jesus Christ! Trish, have you been researching Victorian games? 
<laughs> no, but I maybe I uh, this might tell me that I'm more kind of simpatico with the fucked up Victorian repressive imagination than I had intended. So maybe that's what's uh, that's what I'm drawing on. Damn. Okay, so here's what you do: you um you get a tray, and mm-hmm. uh, everybody sort of sits down around the tray, and then somebody uh like twirls the tray and calls out someone's name Mm -hmm. and then the person who's been called out has to grab it before it falls um (laughs) yeah so it's just like a don't make a mess game basically Um, okay yeah snapdragon is insanely fucked up here's what snapdragon is everybody has to so you fill a bowl up with um with with liquor like brandy or some other shit mm. like that and you put um currants in the bottom of the bowl mm-hmm. you light the bowl on fire and you pick <laughs> them out of the bowl using your mouth <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh god yeah. yeah naughty naughty victorians man Everyone's like, oh, screen time, screen time's bad, screen yeah. time's bad. Oh, well, these fucks were so bored, they were burning their faces off. Yeah. Like, like playing games where you pick a fruit out of a bowl. Yeah, no, that's true. It's, uh, man, at least I, I don't know. I get they're, uh, they're, they're more, the, the fucked up in this comes more from like the danger element or the like, hey, yeah, you know, you can just, you can just do, go, you can just go do kink, right? You don't have to like create these elaborate like parlor game situations. Uh, I was expecting <laughs> stuff more like pin the tail on the Irishman, for instance. You know? <laughs> or, like, yeah. Well, would you like to, would you like to kiss a gentleman rabbit fashion? <laughs> what? <laughs> That's that's uh that's a that's one of the um yes yeah, it's, it's not been the tale on the Irish um but it's but it's but it's something right? yeah um yeah. yeah uh that's the one where you you have to eat a piece of paper um or no you have to eat a piece of cotton and you do Lady and the Tramp with it okay. until you get to the middle uh. and um it says that if the gentleman is sufficiently gallant, he will perform the chief part of the nibbling process. <laughs> okay. The, all right. The company may exercise their discretion as to the length of the cotton. Mm, okay. All right. So, well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I guess let's, let's revise this. Would you rather play that or pin the tail on the Irish? Oh yeah. Why? Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I'll go with that. I'll, I'll go the, the, the sort of the, 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 the games that generally avoid the, uh, no, I, those are, I mean, these are both so fucked up. We haven't even talked about like what pin the tail on the Irish would even be. I know. <laughs> and so here's here's your last here's your last choice. Your last choice. Yeah. It's another it's another forfeit. Um so this so you have one option, which is um Christ, I've lost it. Uh to kiss a lady through the back of a chair. Mm-hmm. Or, or to put yourself through the keyhole. <laughs> oh God, they are so freaking dirty, man! <laughs> like, uh, yeah, yeah, fuck it. Put yourself through the keyhole. Oh my God, Tristan, that's that's the way better one. All you have to do. <laughs> 
all you have to do is write the word yourself on a piece of paper and shove it through the keyhole. Oh man, I I mean, I'm glad I saved us from having to do any of these. But Jesus Christ, I am not happy with how just easily I'm able to get into the Victorian imagination. God damn, yeah, you're like you're like real Victorian hours, practically Charles yeah. Dickens. Mm. That Cockney accent is <laughs> suspicious too. I don't know what you what you're doing in your free time. <laughs> uh. Okay, so that mean, does that mean we, we won? Yeah. We won, and does that I have I have saved us from having to do any of these? Okay, great. Yeah, uh, you won like well, with flying colors. By the way, you, well, 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 Merry Christmas, guys. Thank you. God bless or, us, everyone. You know, God bless us, everyone. Yes, indeed. Uh, <laughs> cool. Well, that that was delightful as always. It was fucked up. Uh, <laughs> it was. It was. Yes. It was. It was fucked up. It was. Uh, it was. It, it was fucked up. The Victorians are fucked up. Um, you know, which leads you as, as an 18th centuryist. I just want to say, don't trust Victorianists, man. They're uh, they're 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 into some shit, mm. you know. Mm. But anyway, <laughs> all right. So. <laughs> uh, thank you all. Uh, this has been better read than dead. You can find Megan on twi- Twitter at Tuslersaurus. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie Crywo. You can find me on Twitter at TJ Schweiger. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at betterredpod, spelled R-E-A-D, and email us at betterredpodcast at gmail.com. But only if you want to speculate which part of this Christmas book would, uh, would have been where Lenin threw it in the trash um, but <laughs> or made him uh, do the Russian Revolution, whichever, whichever you would prefer. <laughs> uh, our intro music is Lev Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo was created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Please rate, review us, and subscribe. Uh, remember that Better Red and the Dead is now off for the holidays until mid-January. But Katie and I and Megan very soon have great episodes in the works for 2020. Um, we'll be starting with I, Claudius, which again, we're going to record very soon. Um, we're doing more Dickens uh, in Megan's absence. Uh, <laughs> uh, probably, <laughs> probably great expectations early in the new season. Uh, we've got Huck Finn for you um, and some Sherlock Holmes, a lot, a lot of other great stuff. Uh, when Megan is back, we'll, of course, be doing Rob Roy and Native Son in very short order, as we have promised. Um, and Katie and I might release a mini episode or two over break. Um, just, you know, to stay tuned to find out about that. Um, so check out our Twitter and Instagram for, uh, for any and all updates. Um, okay. Thanks comrades. And we will see you in the new year. <laughs> <laughs>